You may be seated. Our scripture reading for the sermon is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 24. Would you give your attention to the reading of God's Word? And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, where he was from his journey, was beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, as as this episode unveils to us that you are in the business of opening blind eyes, of showing people what they cannot see until you do. And that would be our prayer this morning, that you would help us to see with the eyes of faith that which we will not see 
until you do. So illumine our hearts and minds. Speak to us that we would hear the voice of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Some of you are likely um, a little surprised because you're thinking to yourself, didn't we read this story last week when we studied God's Word together? And you're not crazy. We did read this story last week when we approached uh, God's Word together. But as I mentioned to you, this series that we've just started, second week in a series that I've entitled... um, Portraits of Discipleship is intended uh, to renew our own uh, commitments to Christ and to remind us of our vision as a local congregation. And I think that this passage, John chapter 4, does a great job of doing that. And it's just such a rich passage that there are probably six, seven different angles that one could take in exploring this passage for discipleship. And so I will actually move on to the last half of this story next week. So you're not going to get caught in this sort of Groundhog Day experience with me each week coming back to this same text. Uh, But I do think there's something really, really rich in what it is that we're going to look at today as we seek to train ourselves to have disciple-making conversations. Now, last week I simply reminded you of our vision as a local congregation, which in a sentence is to glorify God in the gospel as disciples who make disciples. To glorify God in the gospel as disciples who make disciples. And I said to you that one of the things I would love to see us grow in as a congregation is our ability to make disciples. And our ability to make disciples is dependent in large part, on our ability to share Christ with others, which is a very, if we're very honest, a pretty scary often proposition to speak of the gospel with with others. And so I believe Jesus is a tremendous model here, and I think we'll see next week that the woman does similarly after she comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, of what it means to actually share Christ with another. And I want take time this morning to focus on what it means to be a disciple and make disciple by looking at Jesus' instruction to uh, this woman and really unfolding the pattern of conversation that he has with her. Now let me remind you before we jump into that what we talked about last week from these very verses. We said one of the things that that is necessary for the foundation, the power of discipleship to be manifest in our lives is we've got to learn to cross the same boundaries that Jesus crosses. We've got to learn to hold the same truths that Jesus holds. And we've got to learn the skill of, of disciple-making in the way that Jesus shows us that skill here in this passage. We've got, to, we've got to learn those three things together. The boundaries he crosses are religious, they're ethnic, they're social, they're moral He shouldn't be talking to this woman as a Jewish man, and yet he does. And he does for the purpose that he has come as the Savior of the world. And he is willing, because he has crossed heaven and earth, to bring this, what he refers to in this passage as living water, which we'll talk about together today, 
he is able to draw for her a line. He's able to display, as we said it last week, his exclusiveness. It's the exclusiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That doctrine, the truth that we must hold, is actually what gives us the broadness of crossing every other boundary. When we hold tenaciously to Jesus, who crossed the greatest boundary, which is heaven and earth, and he crossed the greatest barrier, which was the barrier between God and man, if he's crossed that barrier, then in Christ we can cross every other smaller barrier that there is. And he displays that in this passage by crossing all of the various barriers in this context. Now, easier said than done. That's true, but it's easier said than done. We said last week that it's, it, it's the fact that Jesus draws lines of exclusivity that makes him so inclusive in the way that he engages with each other. But we said we've got to learn the skill of what lines to draw and how to draw them. Because we often fall off on two equal opposite errors. By... By smoothing out all of the differences, which is what often our culture teaches us to do, to just play down any differences, don't claim to have truth, don't claim to, to know the exclusive way, just smooth out. And there's a lot of different ways up the mountain. We're all just really after the same thing, whether it's through Muhammad or through Buddha or through Jesus. We're essentially doing the same thing, or smoothing out the differences, or... We'll sometimes draw lines way further in than we need to and, and actually fall into the temptation of, of legalism. Now, we want to we steer clear of smoothing out every difference or creating a lot of unnecessary differences, which I think is both traps that we fall into when we get into disciple-making. I, I think by looking at Jesus' conversation here in this text, I think what you'll find is that he shows us how to navigate that path. He gives us one example of what that looks like. And then next week, the woman gives us another example. And they're, they're, they're going to be different, but they're going to be complementary in the way in which they exemplify the process of making disciples. So today, really what I want to do is talk about the character of a disciple-making conversation. What's it look like? If you were going to have a disciple-making conversation with someone, what would it look like? I'd like to suggest it look... A lot like the conversation that Jesus has here with this woman. And there are three distinctives that come out in this conversation. That I want to highlight for us today. That the first of those distinctives is that whenever you begin having a disciple-making conversation, one of the things that's bound to happen is the conversation, if it's a good one, is going to move from confusion to clarity. It's going to move from confusion to to clarity. That's the feel of how the conversation goes. Now, I just want to appeal to your experience for just a second. If you have shared the gospel with someone who really does not know much about Christ, doesn't have their, their kind of P's and Q's in place for, for doctrine, what's going to happen is that person is likely going to get confused. And you as the disciple maker, in the moment of their confusion, often have fears that are associated with clearing up that confusion. I want you to see that Jesus doesn't operate in that fear. Okay? And that he lets the conversation unfold naturally. 
But the conversation as the Spirit works moves us from confusion to clarity. And I want to assert, I'd like you to assume with me, and I think this will become clear in the conversation, that confusion is a necessary part of learning. In order to learn something, you have to be clear that you don't know it. And in learning something, you have to make mistakes. What it, doesn't everything in your life prove that point? Your job and your fourth grade math class and, and all of those red markings on your homework. You learned those things because you messed them up. And that's a natural part of the conversation, not something we should be scared of. And I think that you see in the form of this conversation that, that a disciple-making conversation moves from confusion to clarity. Let's, let's look at it a little bit. This conversation is really a bit of a circus if you, if you, when you begin to unpack it because the woman clearly doesn't understand most of what Jesus says. Uh, after he asked her for a drink and she pretty much falls over um, with shock that a Jewish man would speak to her, a Samaritan woman, he says to her in verse 10, if you'll look at it with me in the text, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's essentially saying this. Listen, woman, I asked you for water and I know it blows you away that a Jewish man would do that. But if you really knew who I was, God on earth, you'd be asking me for a lot more. All right? You'd be asking me for a lot more. In fact, you'd be asking me for living water. That's the language he uses, right? He uses his language of living water. I'm sure that's normally how you share the gospel. Right? No, it's not. He just he uses a metaphor of, of living water. It's actually not very clear. Let me tell you why it's not very clear. You and I hear living water because we know the biblical story all of our lives. So many of us in this room, we think, oh, he's offering her salvation. That's not what the woman heard. That's not what the woman heard. The term living water was a very common first century term for a fresh running water well or spring, something that's bubbling out of the ground, something that would be moving along the ground that was on the surface rather than something that was down deep in the ground. When Jesus says, if you really knew me, you'd be asking me for living water, she's essentially thinking he's talking about an alternate water source. That's a lot easier to get to than the one that's in Jacob Wells. Now we know this because listen to how she responds. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? What is she talking about? Physical, earthly, H2O, agua. That's what she's thinking about. That's what's on her mind. In other words, she's confused. She doesn't really understand what it is that Jesus is saying. Now later, as he calls her to get her husband, and she changes the subject on him, as, we, as we've read, and asks him, where is the right place to worship? Even after he clears up that dialogue and says, you know, it's in Jerusalem, it's not here on Mount Gerizim like your people like to think that it is. It's actually in Jerusalem. That's the authentic place to worship our God. The woman looks at him and she says, well, you know, when the Messiah comes... He's going to make all this really clear. She's very confused. She, she is, by the way, talking to the Messiah. And she doesn't see it. Okay, she's, 
That's the beginning of the conversation and that's the end of the conversation before he unveils there in verse 26 that I am he. Speaking of being the Messiah. Now it's, it's not until Jesus does that that she really has clarity on what it is he's talking about and who it is that, that he is. Now what that teaches us is that as we are making disciples, and as Jesus here is speaking to this Samaritan woman, it's not a frightening thing for the person in whom we're in dialogue with to be royally confused about many of the things that we're talking about on their way to gaining clarity about who Jesus is. I think one of the stumbling blocks that we often we often fall into when we're having disciple-making conversations is we try to trace chase down every question that the person asks. And we want to correct every little misnomer that gets kind of lodged away in their mind. Now here's what I want you to see. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not worried about that. In fact, he leaves all kinds of loose ends in the conversation. It makes me nervous how many loose ends that he makes as a Reformed Presbyterian. Think of this. There are questions. I wish we could go through the details of the passage. I want to commend this to you. But there are questions that the woman asks in the text that he never answers. There are questions that he answers, but answers them in such an enigmatic way that she has no idea what he's talking about. There are statements that he makes, not questions, but just statements that he makes that just leaves the woman utterly confused, of which he doesn't correct. There are statements that she says that are absolutely wrong that he doesn't amend. Let me just give you one example. Because not all of them are absolutely clear in the text. But here's, here's one that you wouldn't necessarily see, but it's, but, it's, but it's there in the original. If In the section right at the very end, in verse 25, where she's talking about, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear everything up for me. John, in that little section, has a little parenthetical phrase. And it says, he who is the Christ. And John writes that little parenthetical phrase because it's not in the Semitic language that she used. Uh, The woman, as a Samaritan, didn't technically believe in the Messiah of the Jews in the same way. Didn't believe in the Savior of the world. In fact, as D.A. Carson makes clear in his commentary, and if you go back over the history of the Samaritans, it's clear they believed in what they called the Tahib, which was a master teacher, a prophet who would come to reveal like Moses. Because you remember, the Samaritans rejected everything but the writings of Moses as the Old Testament canon. So they're looking, as Deuteronomy 18 says, for a prophet like Moses who will again lead the people and restore Israel, but they're not looking for what you would call a savior of the world, a Messiah. It's very different from the kind of thing the Jews were actually anticipating. She says, I know that when the Tahib, when the Messiah, when the restorer of all things comes, he's going to teach us all this stuff. And John says, he who is the Christ. She's not really getting it. But here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't pause and say, no, 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 this Tahib thing, you've really screwed up. He just doesn't do that. Instead, he says, what you're looking for, I am. What you're looking for, I am. Now, I think that's quite fascinating. <laughs> that instead 
of on the spot correcting every aspect of her confusion. Instead, he draws her deeper into relationship with himself. And he begins over course and times to say, you know what? Though I'm not exactly how you think I am, I'm actually the Tahib that you're looking for and more than you can imagine. I am the one who will reveal everything that will come and I'm going to do a whole lot more that you're not even clear about right now. I who speak to you am he. Now, I think what's fascinating about that when you're beginning to look under the unfolding of the text is that Jesus is showing us uh, something of what is going to be the flow of how discipleship making is going to happen. When you're in the midst of a conversation with someone and you're sharing the gospel, there are going to be all kinds of questions that they're going to ask that you're not going to have time to chase down. How many times have you been in a conversation where you're, you're beginning to like Jesus was with her? He gets close to talking. He's talking about water. And she says, sir, I want this water. And he says, go get your husband. And then as they're talking about husband and he reveals her past. You've had five husbands and you've got a live-in boyfriend now. And he's leading her to the end of herself. And she goes, you know what? I see you're a prophet. I've been wanting to ask about this Mount Gerizim thing. That's a moment that all of us have had if we've ever shared the gospel where we're talking about Christ and we're getting close to the gospel and the person says, yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you about Leviticus 2, verse 3, where it explains this very strange dietary law. And you're thinking, no, 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 no. We were on the right track. Now, many times in conversations, you'll see this with Jesus. Those questions pop up and he either doesn't address them and he piggybacks on them and he takes them somewhere where he can stay on the track of the gospel. Or he goes with them and steers the conversation back towards true clarity. The essentials of the gospel. Now I think what's, what's going on there is we have to have a couple of, couple of... What are the character practices that we've got to have in place to have those kind of conversations? Well, I think in this context, we've got to have... First of all, we've got to have faith. We've got to have faith. There is such a tendency in sharing the gospel to think I have to know everything and it has to go a certain way and they have to respond a certain way for anything important and spiritual to have really taken place. And if you look at all of Jesus' conversations, they just happen all kinds of different ways and there's all kinds of loose ends and people are radically converted and changed all the time. We have to have faith that in the sharing of the gospel, God's actually in control. He's actually in control. It's our business to continue to make him clear. It's his business to continue to control the situation. He's in control of the heart. We have to have faith that he's going to make all things plain in time. He's going to make all things plain in time. But I think, secondly, we have to have patience. We have to have patience. We have to be willing be steered and directed without being scripted or rigid. We have to be willing to direct a conversation, give leadership to it, to ask questions, and when it gets derailed, to go with it and trust the Lord to help steer it back. We've got to be patient with the process. We've got to be faith-filled with the God who's in control of it. And as we do, he begins to bear fruit. Even as he does here in verse 26 where he begins to say, 
I who speak to you am he. I must admit, as I'm watching this conversation unfold, from water, physical, to spiritual, to mountains, and Jerusalem, and Gerizim, to husbands, to live-in, boyfriends, I don't know how we're going to get to the gospel. But we do. And I think in large part because Jesus is constantly keeping the first things first in the midst of the conversation. And he's, he's showing us the wisdom of how to do that as a disciple maker. What do I mean? Secondly, the conversation doesn't merely move from confusion to clarity. How does it move, though, to clarity? It does it moves from felt needs to eternal needs. That's how the conversation moves. And I'd like to suggest this is a significant way of sharing the gospel that Jesus displayed for us here. I want to go back to verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says this, If you knew the gift of God... And who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, it's really clear, as we just said a second ago, when this woman heard living water, what did she think? Alternate, better water source. I don't have to come here every day to the well. If there's a stream bubbling up, it's going to be much easier to access. I don't have to drop something down into the ground. Sir, I want this, this living water. What is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is actually touching her felt need as a means of getting to her eternal need. He's conjuring, he's stirring up her desire for what he knows that she would naturally want, a better water source. And to not have to come, if you can think of it this way, to not have to come in the middle of the heat of day as one who bears a social stigma, who's had five husbands who's rejected by the community, To come to have to walk to this place and be exposed by the community. I would love to have something where I can essentially stay close to home, isolated, out of the way. He knows that about her heart. And he says, woman, I'm going to offer you living water. Now he's stirring up her sense of felt need. That's, that's, That's the urgent tension that she feels in this passage. It's the same thing he does in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now what is he doing there? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's just connected living water, this physical thing that she's been interested in. Now he's calling it eternal life. He's unpacked it as a well that gets born inside of you that constantly parches your quenched heart, not your physical tongue. Now, the woman doesn't immediately get that, but that's where he's moving. He's moving over the course of the conversation for where she feels pain to where he knows he can meet her need. Now, I think it's a really, really important part of how sharing the gospel often happens is we move from felt need, from what it is that we know our desires are stirred up to want, to the real need that we need to get to underneath. Now, why does he do this? Well, let me, let me suggest to you that we are most open to new ideas in the areas of our life where we experience the most pain. Right? We are most open to new ideas in the areas of life where we feel the most pain. I was talking this week to someone who's been going through a lot of different medical issues. And there's no sense of clarity as to what's actually going on with him. 
And he, he, said to me, he said to me, I mean, he's feeling very desperate. He said to me, I'm, I'm willing to listen to anyone. I, I'm willing to listen to anyone. Now, what was, what was he saying? I, I feel a lot of pain, and there's a tremendous amount of mystery as to how to get at this. I'm willing now to listen to anyone. Why was he so open? Because <laughs> he was hurting. But do we just have physical hurts? No. We have spiritual hurts. We have emotional hurts. We have relational hurts. It, we, have, we have a myriad of deficits of struggles and sufferings that are taking place in our lives. And what the Scripture is actually teaching us is over and over is that our sufferings are actually our gateway to get to the eternal needs of someone's heart. This is what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain. He says, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender itself as long as everything seems well. But every man knows that when something is wrong, he opens himself up. For pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, if you just look over the course of your life, has God done the most work, mind the most, grown your character the most, and adapted you more into the image of Christ the most when you're in pain? When you're suffering. Why then would it be surprising that in a disciple making conversation, the things that we need to be listening for are the places for pain? Are the places for pain? In fact, I believe this is the practical character skill that we must have in place when we're having disciple making conversations. We've got to have compassion. We've got to have compassion. Compassion. One of the ways that compassion is expressed is it listens to the other for what they need. It listens to the other for what they need. It's paying attention to broken dreams. It's paying attention to deficits, to struggles. It's paying attention to the things that aren't making sense. All the things that are falling apart. It's compassionately listening for need. And as it listens for need, it takes that need... And with the wisdom of Christ, it applies a gospel remedy. Now, I want to talk about gospel remedy as we close, but here's where I think we, go, we often go wrong. When we are listening for a need in someone's life, and they're struggling with something, our default, uh, our default tendency is to give them an advice for how to make it be better rather than give them good news for who is in control of whatever it is. That's our default. So our default is, you know, someone is, is struggling with, with, a, with an illness, a, a child is rebelling, a marriage is falling apart, and someone comes to you with that pain point, that point of suffering, and you're sitting there going through the Rolodex of your mind, what did I learn in premarital counseling 25 years ago that would help this person? You need communication classes, you know? You guys are just not seeing each other in, in right the same way. You, you, again, and a lot of it, here's the remarkable thing, a lot of it's going to be really good advice. It's not bad advice. It, it's advice that, that almost anyone would give. The problem is, often the issues that we're facing, all of the issues in some way, shape, or form, but often the issues we're facing is not a matter of knowledge or skill. It's a matter of heart change. 
And what often happens is we wind up giving people advice that they go home and try to practice. But because their heart is still not in the place that it needs to be, that just becomes to be another thing that doesn't work in their life over time. Because we've wind up band-aiding a symptom rather than getting to the disease. What we actually have to do is shepherd people to Jesus. That, that good advice only is good advice after they've heard good news and not before. If we give people good advice, what's the assumption? That we can work our way forward in advancement. We sometimes refer to that theologically as works righteousness. If I just give you the advice and you do it, life will get better. The assumption. But how many of us have gotten good advice and tried it and things have not gotten better? And what happens then? Despair. But if we give people good news, which says this, things may never get better, but your ultimate issues are taken care of. Suffering may not be relieved, but Jesus will be with you in the suffering. His gra- your thorn in the flesh may not be healed, but my grace is sufficient for you. Let me show you how Jesus knows that. And from that give instruction, it's a qualitatively different thing. Jesus here moves from felt needs to eternal needs in this situation. I want you to show you how he gives her gospel remedy rather than good advice. He could have said to her, woman, you've had five husbands and a live-in boyfriend. I'm going to tell you something right now. You need counseling. You need counseling. You have codependency issues. Now, does she have codependency issues? You better believe she has codependency issues. And we can do a genogram and through her her history find out that she has a mother wound that she is seeking to. That's probably all true. But walking through the advice may only heap more pressure on her rather than give her the rest of salvation she really needs. Let me show you how Jesus shows gospel remedy here. Because he doesn't just move from, this conversation doesn't just move from confusion to clarity, felt needs to eternal needs. He shows us how to do it. He moves from the problem of sin to the answer that is Jesus. To the answer that is Jesus. Not an advice, but a person. The woman says to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So it's an, it's a, I love it. It's like, here is where you're closing the gospel deal. All right? That's what it looks like. She's ready. She's ready to receive the living water, though she has no idea what it is. And she doesn't want to come here to draw water, which means what? She's clearly still thinking, how? (laughs) Earthly. She's not anywhere close, actually, to understanding what he's talking about still. But I want you to hear her heart. In those words, I think there's at least two. I I came up with several, but there's at least two things you should hear. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. What is that heart cry? The heart cry is this. I want to be satisfied and fulfilled. Sir, that's what I want more than anything. I want to be satisfied. I want to be fulfilled. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just parched lips we're getting to the cry of the heart. And then she says this, or, I love that this is added, or have to come here to draw water. Now, we could take that one of two ways. 
It's so exhausting to carry this jar all of this distance and come here and then carry it back. I, I don't want to have to come here to draw water. But we all, last week we talked about the fact that it's the sixth hour, it's the middle of the day, the woman came by herself, which is something a woman would never do at this hour. But coming here every day alone in the heat of the day was a reminder of the fact that she had a social stigma. She had the scarlet A written upon her breast. And what that meant was, Lord, I want this living water so that I can get fulfillment. And secondly, I can escape the pain of my shame. I can escape the pain of my shame. Give me this living water. Now in that moment, don't you see how the felt need is reaching into the heart? You see how she's giving us something here to work with? She's saying, I want satisfaction, and I want for, for, for my shame to be covered. Now, here's what's fascinating. What has Jesus come to do? What's the reason he's come? To cover our shame. And to give us satisfaction. I mean, that's, a, that's the very purpose that he's come. Now, here's what's fascinating is he actually can't give this woman what she wants at this moment. You know why? Because she doesn't want it rightly. What do I mean she doesn't want it rightly? Well, think about it. She wants water so that she can get personally the satisfaction that she wants by her own definitions and categories. And she wants her shame to be escaped from it, and she wants to do it in order to avoid shameful situations. And Jesus has not come for those reasons. Jesus has not come for us to receive personal satisfaction by our definition. Nor has he come to give us a living water that, uh, that keeps us away from, from shameful situations. He has come to give us satisfaction according to his definition, which is actually what our soul desires. And he has come not merely to avoid shameful situations, he has come to remove shame entirely from our lives. She's not quite ready to receive the living water. So what does he say? Go get your husband. Got to be the four most haunting words for her to hear. Because in those four words, what has he just done? He has stirred up her discontent, her lack of fulfillment. And he has stirred up her shame. He, he rubbed her nose in it. When he said, go get your husband. Jesus is leading this woman to own her sexual brokenness. He is leading this woman to face the reality of her shame. The woman says, I have no husband. <laughs> and Jesus decides to get really personal and tell her entire backstory. But things get too uncomfortable. So the woman changes the subject to talk about worship. And it appears at first glance that this conversation as Jesus was moving it has now been derailed by a theological, tenacious subject of the day. But the realization is this woman, through Jesus' wisdom, has actually led the conversation to exactly where he was always taking it. What do I mean? 
when this woman raises a question about where should I worship, Mount Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, the whole conversation that he's addressing in this subject is actually who does this woman worship? The whole, the whole conversation is about that. This, even this conversation about living water. And the, the fact of the matter is, as he comes around and he says, Woman, the Jews are right to worship in Jerusalem, not here on Mount Gerizim. But the time is coming, woman, where all true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. If you can hear what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, Woman, though you've worshipped at Mount Gerizim, You've never really worshipped at Mount Gerizim. You have worshipped instead the idolatry of men. You've worshipped the idolatry of men. That it's not where it is you bow and offer your sacrifice in public view. It's what your heart serves as its primary meaning and satisfaction in life. You've been worshiping men. Men have been your prophets. You've hung on their every words. Men have been your priests. You've sacrificed your life to them. Men have been your kings. They have your life. If only I could get above me, then my shame would be gone. And so every man was her, her potential Messiah. Every man was her potential Savior. But idols continue to break your heart. That's just what they do. And now Jesus is saying to you, the hour is coming, woman, where you won't have to worship flesh, men, or a lie that they're a savior. But you will worship in spirit. And you will worship in truth. And you've got to own the truth of yourself if you're going to worship in that spirit. Jesus, in many ways, is saying to all of us, I who's speaking to you am He. I, I am the divine suitor that you've been looking for your whole life. As you have been pursuing men, the God-man has been pursuing you. And I who am before you am He. Now, the reason we know that this is the case, so much is in this passage, but the Bible recounts several, several women throughout all of the Old Testament, several women meeting their spouses at wells. It's, just, it's, just, it's a theme in the Bible, women and wells and marriage. It's just a thing. Um, and, and the theme always goes like this. A man travels to a foreign land to find a wife. He finds her at the well, she gives him a drink, he meets her family, the marriage is arranged. Think of Abraham. Genesis chapter 24, he stopped by a well and who did he meet? Rebecca. Think of Jacob. He met Rachel at that well, the very well we're standing at here in John chapter 4. She came out to feed the flock. She gave Jacob a drink and she was feeding Laban's flock and they wind up getting married. Think of Moses, he met his future wife Zipporah. At a well where she came with her sister, her father's flock in Exodus chapter 2. It's a thing. Women and wells and men and marriage. 
And Jesus, here in John chapter 4, meets a woman at a well and he talks to her about marriage. He goes even further than that. He marries her here in John chapter 4. He becomes for her a bridegroom. The bridegroom that she's been looking for. The marriage that she's always wanted and never had. The life of meaning and significance that she's been chasing. And has left her nothing but shattered because of the idolatry of her heart. She now has come to the one who is hers. The lover of her soul. For Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. That Jesus is our bridegroom. And we, the church, are the bride. And it's at this well, Jacob's well, that Jesus shows us we are to meet him there as well. To be married to him. To forsake all of our idols. And to find in him our truest suitor. For he will satisfy our hearts. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, I would ask you, I'd ask you to satisfy our hearts right now, even as we hear that truth. I ask you to, to, to grow us up. We want to be able to, we want to be able to, to share the gospel and learn from these conversations of Jesus so that we're better at knowing how to make you known. Would you help us in that? Would you right now begin to equip us with the wisdom and the grace that only you can give? so that your glory will shine in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.